0: Chapter Eighteen of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cecily Hamilton. Chapter Eighteen. It was the phrase Devil's Knowledge that, when his first bewilderment was over, gave Theodore the clue to the meaning of the scene he had lived through, and the outlook of those whose man he would become on the morrow, that, in the sudden memory of Markham, on the crest of the centuries, on the night when the crest curled over. He was so far taken into tribal fellowship that he had ceased to be openly a prisoner, but the two men who, for the rest of the night, shared with him the shelter of a lean-to hut, took care to bestow themselves between their guest and the entrance. he got little out of them in the way of enlightenment, for they were asleep almost as they flung themselves down on their moss. But for hours, while they snored, Theodore lay open-eyed, piecing together his fragmentary information of the world into which he had strayed. Without devil's knowledge, that, if he understood aright, was the qualification for admission to the life that had survived disaster. Devil's knowledge being, if he was not mad, the scientific, mechanical, engineering lore which was the everyday acquirement of thousands on thousands of ordinary civilized men. The everyday acquirements of ordinary men were anathema. If he was not mad, his own life had been granted him for the reason only that he was unskilled and devoid of them. Ignorant, even as the men who spared him, of practical science and mechanics, a plain man like unto them. Ignorance was prized here, esteemed as a virtue. The old man's query, you're a college man, had been an accusation disguised. In a flash it was clear to him, and he saw through the farce whereby he had been tested and tempted, understood the motive that had prompted its cruel low cunning and all that the cunning implied of acceptance, of barbarism, insistence on it. What these outcasts, These remnants of humanity feared above all things was a revival of the science, the mechanical powers that had wrecked their cities, their houses, and their lives, and made them what they were. In knowledge was death, and in ignorance alone was a measure of peace and security. Hence, fearing lest he was of those who knew too much, they had tempted him to confess to forbidden knowledge, to boast of it, that, having boasted, they might kill him without mercy." make an end of his wits with his life. In the torments inflicted by science destructive, they had turned upon science and renounced it. And that their terrors might not be renewed in the future, they were setting up against it an impassable barrier of ignorance. They had put devil's knowledge behind them with intention forever. If when they questioned him and led him on, he had yielded to the natural impulse to lie, they would have knocked him on the head like vermin without scruple, and the sweat broke out on him as he remembered how nearly he had lied. He sat up, sweating and staring at darkness, and thrust back the hair from his forehead. He was back among men who, of set purpose and deliberately, had turned their faces from the knowledge their fathers had acquired by the patience and toil of generations, who, of set purpose and deliberately, sought to filch from their children the heritage of the ages, the treasure of the mind of man. That was what it meant, the treasure of the mind of man, renunciation of all that long generations had striven for with patience and learning and devotion, the impossibility and the treason of it, to know nothing, to forget all their fathers had won for them. He remembered old talk of education as a birthright and the agitations of reformers and political parties. To this end. Who were they, he asked himself, these people who had made a decision so terrible? What manner of men in the old life? Now they were seeking to live as the beasts live, and not only the world material had died to them, but the world of human aspiration. To this they had come, these people who once were human, the beast in them had conquered the brain, and like fire there blazed into his brain the commandment, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, thou shalt not eat lest ye die. The command, the prohibition, had suddenly a new significance, was this then the purport of legend hitherto meaningless was this the truth behind the childish symbol the deadly truth that knowledge is power of destruction power of destruction too great for the human the fallible to wield odd that he had never thought of it before that familiar all his life with a deadly truth he had read it as primitive childishness of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat lest ye die He sat numbly repeating the words, half-aloud, till there flashed into his brain a memory, a vision of Markham, in his room off Great Smith Street, on the night when war was declared, talking rapidly with his mouth full of biscuit. Only one thing I'm fairly certain about—I ought to have been strangled at birth. If the human animal must bite, it should kill off its scientific men. Stamp out the race of them! What was that but a paraphrase? a modern application of the command laid upon adam of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat lest ye die to his first impulse of amazement and shrinking as from treason succeeded understanding of the outlook of these men and their decision more he wondered why even in the worst of his despair he had always believed in the persistence the rebirth of the civilization that had bred him these people he saw it were logical as Markham had been logical, were wise after the event as Markham had been wise before it, and it amazed him that in his pourings and guessings at a world reviving, he had never hit upon their simple solution of the eternal problem of war, Markham's solution, which, till this moment, he had not taken literally. You can't combine the practice of science and the art of war. In the end, it's one or the other. We, I think, are going to prove that very definitely, one or the other, the fighting instinct or knowledge. Man, because he fights, must deny himself knowledge, which is power over the forces of nature. The secrets of nature must be veiled from him by his own ignorance, lest when the impulse to strife wells up in him, they serve him for infinite destruction. These renegades, in agony, had made confession of their sin, of the corporate sin of a world, had faced the brutality of their own nature, had denied themselves the fruit of the tree of knowledge and led themselves out of temptation. Since fight they must, being men with men's passions, they would limit their powers of destruction. So he read their strange, self-denying ordinance. The thought led him on to wonder whether they were alone in their self-denying ordinance. Surely not, unless they lived hidden, in complete isolation, out of contact with others of their kind. And obviously they did not live isolated. They had spoken of others who were stronger, and of land that was theirs, implying a system of boundary and penalty for trespass and theft. Further, the phrase against all enemies indicated at least a possibility of the contact that was bloodshed. Yet enemies who had not yet renounced the advantage of mechanical and scientific knowledge would be enemies who could overwhelm at the first encounter a community fighting as barbarians. What then was their relation to a world more civilized than communities that had not renounced? In the end, from sheer exhaustion, he ceased to surmise and argue with himself and slept suddenly and heavily, huddling for warmth on his moss bed against the body of his nearest jailer. It was a thrust from a foot that awakened him and he crawled out shivering into the half light of dawn and the chill of a frostbitten morning. The camp was alive and emerging from its shelters, the women already occupied in cooking the morning meal. Theodore and his guardian shared a bowl of steaming mess a mingling of potatoes, dried green stuff, and gobbets of meat which he guessed to be rat flesh. They shared it wolfishly, each man eating fast lest his fellows had more than their portion. The meal over, the bowl was flung back to the women for washing, and his jailers, his mates now, relaxed. There was no further reason for unfriendliness, and they were willing enough to be communicative with the slow, uncommunicativeness of men who have little but their daily round to talk about. They had neighbors, yes, at least what you might call neighbors. There was a settlement much the same size as their own, some three or four hours journey away on the other side of the river. That was the nearest, and the tribesmen met sometimes, but not often. Being questioned, they explained that there was frequent trouble about fishing rights, where our stretch of river ended and theirs began trouble and now and then fighting yes of course they lived as we do how else should they live they were better off for shelter having taken possession of a village but we in the hills were much safer not so easy to attack or surprise no they were not the only ones on this side of the river but farther away was another settlement a larger one there had been trouble with them too as they were very short of food and sent out raiding parties They had fallen on the village across the water, carried off some of its winter stock, and set light to three or four houses. Later, a month ago, they had fallen on us, less successfully because we were warned and on the lookout for them. That was why we always have watchers at night, the watchers who saw your fire. Even from a first halting conversation with men who found anything but sheer statement of fact, the difficulty, Theodore was able to construct in outline the common life of this new humanity, its politics internal and external. The constitution of the tribe, the origin and keystone of the social system had been in the beginning as much a matter of reckless chance as the mating of himself and Ada. Small wandering groups of men who had come alive through the agony of war and famine had been knit together by a common need or a terror of loneliness and insensibly welded into a whole and embryo community. It was a matter of chance, too, in the beginning, whether the meeting with another little wandering group would result in bloodshed for the possession of food, sometimes for the possession of women, or a welcome and the joining up of forces. But to the joining up process, there was always a limit, the limit of resources available. A tribe which desired to augment its strength as against its rivals was faced with the difficulty of filling many hungry mouths. Their own community had once been faced with such a difficulty and had solved it by driving out three or four of its weaker members. What became of them? asked Theodore and was told no one knew. It was winter when food ran short and they were driven out and some of them had come back after nightfall to the edge of the camp and cried to be allowed in again till the men ran out and drove them off with sticks and stone throwing. After that, they went and were no more seen. Later in the summer, there had broken out a sickness, which again reduced their numbers. When the wind blew for long up the valley, it brought a bad smell with it and flies. That was what caused the sickness. There had been a great deal of it. It was said that in a village lower down the river, more than half the inhabitants had died. He surmised as he listened and realized later, That it was the need of avoiding constant strife that had broken the nomadic habit and solidified the wandering and fluid groups into tribes with a settled dwelling place. Until a limit was set to their wanderings, groups and single nomads drifted hither and thither in the search for food, snarling at each other when they met. The end of sheer anarchy came with appropriation by a particular group of a stretch of country which gave some promise of supporting it. That entailed the institution of communal property the setting up of a barrier against the incursions of others, a barrier which was also a limit beyond which the group must not trespass on the land and possessions of others. Swiftly, insensibly, and naturally, there was growing up a system of boundaries, boundaries established in the first place by chance, by force or rough custom, and defined later by meetings between headmen of villages. Within its boundaries, each tribe or group existed as best it might overstepping its limits at its peril, but disputing at intervals, as men have disputed since the world began, the precise terms of the agreement that defined its limits, and agreements being verbal only, there were many occasions for dispute. As he questioned his new-made comrades and heard their answers, there died in Theodore's heart the hope that these people into whose midst he had stumbled, these people living like the beasts of the field, were but dwellers on the outskirts of a world reviving and civilized. Of men existing in any other fashion than their own, he heard no mention, no rumor. There was talk only of a camp here and a village there where men fished and hunted and scratched the ground that they might find the remains of others sowing. The formal intercourse between the various groups was suspicious and slyly diplomatic, an affair of the meetings of headmen. though now and again, as life grew more certain, there was trading in the form of barter one community had settled in a stretch of potato fields left derelict which even under rough and unskilled cultivation yielded more than sufficient for its needs another by some miracle had possessed itself of goats three or four in the first instance found wild among the hills escaped from the hungry indiscriminate slaughter which had bared the countryside of cattle these they bred were envied for guarded with arms in their hands and occasionally bartered, not without bitter resentment and dispute at the price their advantage exacted, but of those who possessed more than goats or the leavings of other men's fields, who lived as men had been wont to live in the days when the world was civilized, not a trace, not so much as a word. Direct questioning brought only a shake of the head. Towns, yes, of course there were towns, further on, but no one lived in them, you could not get a living out of pavements bricks and hard roads up the river the way he had come was a stretch of dead land where nothing grew and no one lived he had seen it for himself and knew best what lay beyond it lower down the river were the other camps like their own so many they knew of and others they had heard of further off in the distance on the other side of those hills there had been a large town in the old days ruins of it miles of streets and ruins were lying on both banks of the river They themselves had never entered it, only seen it from a distance, but those who lived nearer had said it was mostly in ruins, and that bodies were thick in the streets. In the summer, they had heard, it was forbidden to enter it, because it was those who had gone there in search of plunder, who first were smitten with the sickness which spread from their camp along the valley. It was the wind blowing over the town, so they said, which brought the bad smell and the flies. No, they did not know its name, had never heard it. It was when he turned from the present to the past that Theodore found himself against a barrier, the barrier unexpected of a plain unwillingness to talk of the world that had vanished. When spoken of at all, it was spoken of carefully with precaution and choosing of phrase, and no man gave easily many details of his life before the ruin. At first, the strange attitude puzzled him. He could make nothing of the odd, suspicious glances whereby questioning was met, the attempt to parry it the cautious, noncommittal replies. It was only by degrees that he grasped their significance and understood how complete was that renunciation of the past which these people had imposed upon themselves. Forgetfulness, so Theodore learned in time, was more than a precaution. It had been preached in the newborn world as a religion, accepted as an article of faith. The prophet who had expressed the common need and instinct in terms of religion had in due time made his appearance a wild-eyed eloquent scarecrow of a man aflame with belief in his sacred mission and was loathing for the sins of the world coming from no one knew where he carried his gospel through a land left desolate proclaiming his creed of salvation through ignorance and crying woe on the yet unrepentant sinners who should seek to preserve the deadly knowledge that had brought god's judgment on the world the seed of his doctrine fell on fruitful soil on brutalized minds in starved bodies. The shaggy, half-naked enthusiast was hailed as a lawgiver, saint, and savior, and the harvest of souls was abundant. On every side, the faith was embraced with fervor, the bitter experience of the convert confirming the prophet's inspiration. Tribe after tribe reconciled itself to a God who had turned in wrath from his creatures, offended by their upstart pretensions and encroachments on the power of deity. Tribe after tribe made confession of its sin, groveling at the feet of a jealous omnipotence and renouncing the works of the devil and the deadly pride of the intellect. And in tribe after tribe, there were hideous little massacres, blood offerings, sweet and acceptable sacrifice that should purify mankind from its guilt. Those who were known to have pried into the hidden secrets of omnipotence were cut off in their wickedness, lest they should corrupt others, were dragged to the feet of the prophet and slaughtered Lest they should defile humanity anew through the pride of the intellect and the power of their devil sent knowledge. Men known to be learned or suspected of learning, men possessed of no more than mechanical training and skill. There was a story of one whom certain in the tribe would have spared, a doctor of medicine who had comforted many in the past. But the prophet cried out that this uttermost sacrifice too was demanded of them till, frenzied with piety, they turned on their healer and beat out the brains that had served them and over the bodies had followed an orgy of repentance, of groaning and revivalistic prayer, the priest blessing the sacrifice with uplifted arms and calling down the vengeance of God Most High upon those who should be false to the vow they had sworn in the blood of sinners. He chanted the vow, they repeating it after him, taking oath to renounce the evil thing, to stamp it out wherever met with, in man, in woman, in child. The prophets, so Theodore learned, had continued his wanderings, preaching the gospel as he went, through village after village and settlement after settlement, till he passed beyond the confines of report. He had bidden his followers expect his return, but whether he came again or not, his doctrine was firmly established. He had left behind him the germs of a priesthood, a tradition and a law for his converts, a law which included the penalty of death for those who should fail to keep the vow lest it should fade from their minds, there were days set apart for renewal of the vow, for public ceremonial repetition of the creed and doctrine of ignorance, and with the ruin and ever-present memory to the remnant of humanity. The tendency was to interpret the law with all strictness. There were devotees and fanatics who watched with a mingling of animal fear and religious hate for signs of relapse and backsliding. Denunciation was of all things dreaded, An outspoken regret for a world that had passed had more than once been pretext for denunciation. To dwell in speech on the doings of that world might be interpreted, had been interpreted, as a hankering after the thing forbidden, a desire to revive the accursed, hence the parrying of questions, the barrier of protective silence which the newcomer broke through with difficulty. It took more than a day for Theodore to understand his new world and its meaning, to grasp its social system and civil and religious polity. But at the end of one day, he knew roughly the conditions in which he was destined to live out the rest of his life. Not that, in the beginning, he admitted that so he must live. It was long, many years, before he resigned himself to the knowledge that his limits till death released him were the narrow limits of his tribe. For years he held secretly, but nonetheless fast, to the hope of a civilization that must one day reveal itself advance and overwhelm his barbarians for years he strained his eyes for the coming of its pioneers its saviors it was long very long before he gave up his hopes and faced the certainty that if the world he had known continued to exist it existed too feebly and too far away to stretch out to himself and his surroundings there were times when the longing for it flared and burned in him and he sought desperately for traces of the world he had known running hither and thither in search of it. Under pretext of a hunting expedition, he would absent himself from the tribe and trespass, often at the imminent risk of death, on the territory of alien communities, returning after days no nearer to his goal and no wiser for his stealthy prowlings. The life of alien communities, the prospect revealed from strange hills, was to all intents and purposes, the life and outlook of his tribe. He would question the occasional stranger from a distant village in the hope of at least a word, a rumor, a rumor that might give guidance for further and more hopeful search. But those who came from distant villages spoke only of villages more distant, of other hunting grounds, of other tribal feuds, of other long stretches of ruin. The world, so far as it came within his ken, was cut to one pattern, the pattern of a cowed and brutalized man who bent his face to the stubborn ground and forgot the cunning of his fathers. End of chapter 18, recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.